hello and welcome to the inner sanctum of the moth sanctuary where we are giving our listeners a look behind the curtain about how we've created some of our penny dreadfuls from the moth sanctuary series i'm chloe and i'm andrew and today we are going to be discussing the first episode we ever created so this is taking a deep dive into lost lisa marie yeah, Lost Lisa Marie. So before we get into the inspiration behind the story, just recap what happens in in the the actual tale. Sure. Well, Lost Lisa Marie is the story of a young girl from a small fishing town who meets a young man from far afield and he seems worldly and learned and she swiftly falls in love and he dotes all of his attention and affection on her. And uh, one night he decides that uh, he's going to take her out for a for a night to go and see the stars, as many stars as she's ever seen. Um, and so against her parents' wishes, she steals away in the night and, and runs away to this, uh, this cliffside with him to go and look over the ocean and look at the moon and look at the stars. And then there's an act of betrayal uh, that leaves her dead but not dead. And uh, the story just kind of goes from there in terms of how she goes about climbing back from the jaws of death, as it were. And you said that this is a character that that means a lot to you. So mm. what's the inspiration for her? Where does she come from? So, so the background for Lisa Marie, um, about 10, maybe 11 years ago, I was invited to... Uh, write and perform a song for a Cornish language song contest. So you're a musician for anyone who doesn't know? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I write all the music for the Penny Dreadfuls as well as for other things and, and I've been a songwriter in the past as well. So I was invited to, to perform and write this song uh, for this competition and the theme was basically, you know, just general patriotism, what does Cornwall mean to you? And I heard a lot of the other entries and they were, you know, talking about Cornwall's obvious beautiful landscape and they were talking about, you know, the the history of their families and the traditions and things like that. But to me, growing up in a place like Cornwall, living in a place like Cornwall, I was always more fascinated by the romance of the legends and the stories and the folk tales that exist down there. So I decided I wanted to write my own folk tale and the only way that I really know how to do that is to write a murder ballad so I wrote this murder ballad um, from the perspective of uh, of Lisa Marie after she's been murdered existing as this spectral ghostly form which is uh, hell-bent on vengeance so that ex- that existed for a long time then as a as a, as a song um, and it came to be quite popular um, whenever I performed sets. And when it came to the pandemic, we'd started here at the Moth Sanctuary, we'd started recording audiobooks of other people's stories. So lots of short stories from Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft. Um, but, but as we were doing them, I kind of got the thought into my head of the fact that I'd like to try and do some of our own stories. And I thought that Lost Lisa Marie would just be kind of a, a an, an excellent kind of capsule to see if it's something that we could do that would have any legs. Um, 
so I thought, seeing as though that was a story that I already had, all I would have to do is just write it in in full prose form from the song that it had been, uh, and then just just take it from there. But what I found is that as, as she is wont to do, as she has has a life of her own um, and a spirit of her own, uh, the story when it became a prose piece um, added its own layers that were either unexpected or I just hadn't seen before, which, uh, which was really nice. So, yeah. So what changed along the way when you were developing this from a song into a, a story, a longer length story? Uh, well, putting myself into the mindset of, of a, you know, a lovesick young woman was, was kind of a difficult one for me because I'd, I'd only ever known Lisa Marie as a vengeful ghost spirit so so to have to deal with her beforehand before these or this instance that had happened to her um and and led to her becoming this this spectral presence was something that i hadn't expected but it was also quite quite lovely to to kind of see who she was before that and you know how different she was when i was writing her before she became the ghost which was, you know, wholly unexpected. It's it's not something that I was expecting. She was telling me essentially who who she was before this, but it it was really lovely actually to kind of play with the bits once she's under the water as well. I mean that that was very challenging, you know, because essentially you're talking about somebody that's suspended in place for years, and 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 when she realizes that there are other bodies down here with her. Uh, that it's not just her, it's not going to stop. And the only way that it will stop is if she does something about it. Because there's a real theme of kind of rising up and reclaiming the power from the the abuser in this story as well. Yeah. Like how did you How did you kind of incorporate that into what could have otherwise just been a, a sort of typical monster story? Now, again, that was kind of completely accidental and this is this is why i feel like she she's almost the the little guardian angel that follows me around this this sort of presence that makes herself known and tells her own story because i think if i were to sit down and write a story that was trying to address that overtly i don't think that i am the voice to do it mm-hmm. um whereas it was more just in the telling of this story that was just the natural metaphor the natural allegory that came from it uh that that whole rising up and taking back your power from your abuser um and taking back your power from your abuser with other people that have been through the same thing that you have and all together you form a sort of collective unit and a collective strength uh, that shows that you're not alone i think that's something that just kind of came out naturally from the story without any premeditation uh, going into it what do you think the scariest part of this story is like where where's the horror in it for you i guess it's kind of threefold for me that the the horror is is obviously the initial act of violence perpetrated by this this romantic figure in her life somebody that she trusts somebody that she kind of thinks is going to take her away from everything that she that she knows that she's unhappy with i feel like we've all been there <laughs> <laughs> um for, for it to be so m- meaningless as well in 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 that act of violence um equally i i feel like 
being under under the water the, the, when she's under the water and she's unable to move and she's witnessing all these things and she's realizing that death isn't just your brain switching off and you go away somewhere else you know she's still there she's unable to move she's cold she's alone and she witnesses these murders happen year after year and is powerless to do anything about it that that to me is equally terrifying and then of course you know her coming back for her vengeance it's not as it's not really a triumphant moment as it is in some ways but in other ways it's really not because she is she is now she is not what she once was this experience has changed her and yeah she has to take an action to be able to stop him but she has become this hideous monstrous gangrel creature um through through the course of of the story and it has changed her so that i find equally equally terrifying do you have a favorite part of the story um well i mean it seems it seems strange to say this now but yeah i mean her her vengeance is the <laughs> is is the highlight of the story for me um you know but but maybe not necessarily for the reasons that's expected because i love the notion of her climbing up the side of the cliff um and or her even her surfacing to the top of the water when she's been under the water for so long that she says how just the wind on her skin is agony and how climbing the rocks is is like tearing the the skin off of her off of her bones because she's so waterlogged but she does it anyway she ignores those feelings and she climbs up and she she is so bent her resolve is so absolute that she is going to go and do this thing and nothing is going to stop her and then when she actually gets over that edge and she saves another person as much as she exacts her revenge she's also saving someone which is something that i find quite admirable as well and then just all of these figures closing in on him and you know giving him what he deserves that's my favorite part of the story there's a scene or a part of it where you're describing like her hands as she's coming out of the water which is really kind of gross and disgusting this idea that she's kind of seeing herself in a different light mm. was that was that kind of intentional in the idea that you you wanted her experiences to be what changed her or was that literally just to create something really visual and, and scary for the for the story I, th I, th I I didn't go into that intentionally I mean if if I was going by just the song alone, she would be, she would appear as her normal self, but just as a ghost. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is, it is just based upon her experiences, which, um, which turn her from this fresh-faced youth that she once was into this. I mean, and we all go through it. These things that that these traumas or these problems in our lives that that forge us but also transform us into something other than what we were before. The difference is, is the fact that she has been through it and it has changed her and it has turned her into something ugly that she, that she wasn't before, but she's going to use that in a way which is going to be positive and is going to make sure that nothing happens to anybody else again. It's a real like metaphorical sort of loss of innocence. Yeah. But then, uh, yeah, like a gaining of, of power, which is quite interesting. And Absolutely. I think it just makes her a really complex 
and compelling character, mm. which is great. So if you, if you haven't listened to Lost Lisa Marie already, where have you been? <laughs> um, it is the first episode of season one of Penny Dreadfuls in the Lost Sanctuary. This is the first original story we released. Um, and it's available to listen to for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. So get on that. But before we close off this episode, we are going to do a bonus question. Bonus question. Um, completely unrelated to the episode that we're discussing, um, but just talking about our favourite horror films, books, characters. Um, so quite aptly for, for this episode, our question for today is, what does the relationship between horror and music mean to you? Mm. And are there styles of music within the horror genre that you prefer over others? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, think, I think for me in terms of preferring, there's something that I've noticed, because obviously when you're, when you're scoring something that's scary or something that's horrific that you know you you have to kind of open yourself up to different styles of music to be able to illustrate the stories that you're telling but what i've noticed is there's a there's a tendency these days towards ambience and uh soundscapes and tones which creates this really strange this really strange and unexpected effect where you don't know if what you're listening to in the film uh, or, or in the audio series or the podcast is diegetic or non-diegetic. So you don't know if it's part of the scene or you don't know if it's something outside of the scene that has been used to score. I think that's why I, I generally try to stay away wherever possible from ambient scores because it's, it's not fully possible to get away from it when you're, when you're working in horror. Because, uh, you know, with me, I much prefer um, melodic music. I tried to make the music in the Penny Dreadfuls as melodic as possible. Um, but sometimes you, you can try and force something and it will tell you, no, this this needs to be a different way. Um, and so I have had to concede a few times and give it more of an ambience. But yeah, I, th I think wherever possible, things like, um, I, th I believe it's Fernando Velasquez that does the Crimson Peak score, which I think is one of the best horror scores in the last 10 years or so. Uh, you've got things like Bernard Herrmann, who was, you know, just an absolute machine when it came to scoring music. Um, and he had a really strong sense of melody and to even Jerry Gold, uh, Goldsmith um, with things like The Omen. Like that is absolutely musical. There's nothing ambient about it at all. And it's utterly terrifying. One of the most terrifying pieces of music that's ever been produced ever. Um, and his score for the the 1999 The Haunting, even though the movie itself is terrible, the score for it I would say is one of the the best sort of spooky scores that you can that you can find. If you had to pick one iconic horror theme, which one would you pick? That's almost an impossible question because <laughs> you know where where do you go? Because and and the thing is, is that the iconic ones aren't necessarily my favourite ones, but they are iconic for all the right reasons. Yeah, like Cape Fear, for example. <laughs> the fact that that has gone from that movie to being Sideshow Bob's theme yeah. in The Simpsons yeah. is just brilliant. And it shows just how much it's permeated popular culture. And it's a terrifying piece of music. Mm. It's absolutely excellent. But yeah, and wouldn't necessarily say it's my favourite, but it's probably one of the most iconic mm. 
And then you think, you know, you've got things like uh, the theme from Halloween, yeah. the theme from The Shining, the theme from Psycho. You've got, you know, there's just so many. <laughs> and that's the thing, because that, that's not even the theme no, from that's Psycho. Just that's, scene. Just, that's just incidental music for a scene. You know, the, the rest of it is, is a completely different melody. But it's, isn't it funny that that score is so iconic that that's what most people remember? And obviously so much of so much of the horror genre relies on music to convey the emotion of the scene and it kind of gives you that shortcut to what you're supposed to be feeling in response to it mm. and the fact that when you play with that it's so discombobulating Suspiria yeah. for example oh, the goodness. sound the score and the soundtrack to Suspiria is so much of a head trip mm. that the film just wouldn't be the same without it and that's not particularly melodic that is very much more just the disorientation wall of sound type of stuff yeah but yeah the the actual sound of a horror movie makes such a big difference to the overall effect and what you take away from it yeah you you kind of can't have horror without music i don't think no no not at all well there we go that is a little peek inside the inner sanctum of the moth sanctuary thank you for listening thank you andrew for telling us the the backstory to lost lisa marie thank you keeping her alive yeah um if you want to listen to uh lost lisa marie the story she's episode one of season one of penny dreadfuls in the moth sanctuary and um, we will be bringing you some more bonus episodes with some of our most popular stories um so please tune in next time and if you haven't already subscribe to penny dreadfuls from the moth sanctuary on apple podcasts spotify uh podbean or wherever you listen to your podcasts and we will catch you next time 